You're listening to the Next Generation Gym Owners People and Profits Podcast, where we focus on taking your passion and turning it into your profits. Join us for interviews with business experts, industry influencers, and more. Let's get to it. All right, uh, Colonel Riddle, thank you so much for joining us on the Next Generation People and Profits Podcast. Super excited to be sitting down with you. Uh, I just had the opportunity to read uh, one of the chapters of your book, and uh, I was reading it on my walking treadmill and just getting all pumped up, and uh, it was bringing back all the memories of, of my time, not in a cockpit, but uh, you know, in the military and uh, identifying with some of your experiences after that mission, and so very excited to chat with you. Um, obviously, I had the opportunity to read a little bit beforehand, but would you mind for our listeners uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, what your background is and what it is you're up to now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Dan, and thanks for taking the time to read a little bit of the book. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for your service. Uh, you know, there's a fraternity uh, amongst military veterans, and, you know, we kind of have our own language uh, and, and culture of sorts, and uh, I appreciate your willingness to serve and have me here today. So uh, I am a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, of course, I'm expressing my own opinions here today, but I'm currently stationed at the Pentagon, unfortunately flying a desk in the basement. Uh, but uh, my career to this point, I've been in about 24 years. I was fortunate to fly for 20 straight years in uh, A-10, Thunderbolt II, we call it the hog. I uh, also was a T-38 instructor pilot there in uh, Wichita Falls at NJET, is the name of the program at uh, Shepard Air Force Base, Texas. Uh, I was raised as a preacher's kid and then out of college, I had an interest in the military, but also had an interest in ministry. So I had bounced around kind of a number of different jobs where uh, I had hoped to compete collegiately uh, and being a small guy and having seven surgeries, that didn't work out so well. And uh, flying a fighter jet was uh, about as close as I could get to being a professional athlete. You know, uh, the Dallas Cowboys were not going to call me and draft me to be their starting strong safety. Uh, but man, finding a, a culture that was committed to competing and winning and serving something better than themselves and demanding excellence and always having an opportunity for refinement. Uh, I certainly found a home uh, within the A-10 and within the fighter pilot community there. I had a background in ministry as a youth pastor for a few years uh, and then also a collegiate teaching fellow and a, a research assistant. So kind of a strange <clears throat> mix that uh, has allowed me to do some speaking on resilience and a little bit of uh, the core of the book that I've written on uh, spiritual, mental, emotional resilience. And truly, we just share some fighter pilot stories that uh, oftentimes I make fun of myself about and discuss, all right, what are some of the eternal principles that we can draw from this experience? And what does some of the current day research say that, uh, that supports those ideas? Yeah, that's uh, amazing. You have an amazing background. Um, and I actually didn't realize that you're still you still are actively serving. I am, yeah. And uh, like I said, flying a desk and, and not too important, of course. Uh, you'll realize quickly at the Pentagon with 20,000 people there. I mean, my assigned parking, you'll love this. Macy's department store was closer than where the Pentagon assigned my parking. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, I've, I've learned a lot out here. Uh, it's obviously an incredible place. And uh, we hope to uh, go back to a cockpit to the Combat Air Force next year. Well, uh, thank you for your service as well. Um, and from, uh, I was an uh, Army guy. Uh, I, I chose to go the guard route, but we had deployments. This was obviously during uh, the, the global war on terror when things were very active. And so we, were, we had a pretty aggressive op tempo. Um, and from a guy on the ground, having that A-10 above was like always that it's like having your warm safety blanket. You know, you just felt like everything was going to be right. Um, so we appreciate those of you that were up there flying those beautiful, beautiful uh, birds. And uh, I remember when they were talking about getting rid of all of them. And we're all like, what are you thinking? This is like the greatest machine ever made for modern warfare. Um, and they luckily changed their mind on that one. Well, it's an incredible machine, and I was fortunate to get to fly it. And, and working with the Army guys, I, uh, I parachuted with the 82nd Airborne for about three years, and I called that my Air Force Appreciation Course. It was an additional duty to fly in the hog, but the guys on the ground are very much a part of the A-10 culture. 
Uh, and uh, even though you'll hear, you know, fighter pilots thump their chest and say we're the tip of the spear, we, we truly understand that the mission is that 18-year-old kid with a rifle. Yep. And they're committed to those guys on the ground. For your listeners that don't know, the A-10 is designed for close air support and a very rugged machine, able to be very precise with its weapons employment. And I mean, just as a culture, as a community of hog pilots, we, we feel a great kindred shift to the guys on the ground. And we'll we'll bend that jet up to get down in there and help, uh, help our guys. Yeah, and so uh, you led to it. Your very first chapter of your book, you kind of talk about bending your jet up a little bit and um, flying it into uh, a pretty nasty storm. And I was impressed by the pictures of what the hail actually did to your jet. Um, would you mind giving a quick, I mean, let's start with the story because it's, sure. it's a pretty impressive one. Yeah. Well, I, I love telling stories and I love hearing them and, and I love the principles that come out of them. Uh, and so I'll tell your listeners right away that this, this is, story doesn't end with me being the hero by any means. And as a general rule, uh, fighter pilots aren't supposed to fly into storms and beat up their jets. Uh, but we were uh, flying a mission in 2008 in uh, Afghanistan. We were up in the northeast part of the country over the Hindu Kush and uh, having a real hard time getting through some thunderstorms to our assigned area. Uh, and there was a troops in contact call for us to respond to, which means uh, some of our get guys are getting attacked. And in fact, the uh, radio intercepts, the human uh, had said that there was an impending ambush uh, with 100 enemy troops. And uh, one of our vehicles, one of the guys on the ground, their convoy had struck an IED and uh, they needed our support uh, that direction. So I and the guy we were flying with uh, did our best to pick our way back through the weather and find ourselves uh, you know, overhead about 15 miles offset from where this convoy was on the ground. And for those who've flown or lived over there, <laughs> there's a, a part of the, the map that we call Nixon's Nose, and it's a very pronounced triangle, a part of the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, just north of coast. And really rugged mountains in that area between 13 and 15,000 foot uh, peaks. And they were down uh, along a river valley. And as I'm flying up and down the storm, uh, I'm getting uh, radio chatter from them regarding the impending ambush. I can hear you know, the elevation in their voice. They're trying to relay through a third radio station uh, that we need some air support uh, immediately. And I happened to be overhead, again, just a little offset from the storm. And uh, the gentleman I was flying with there, his call sign was Pig. He was over at the tanker getting gas. And uh, their urgency, you know, really compelled me to, to, to do what we could. So um, I headed in their direction and flew into the storm. And, you know, at the time, it looked like, uh, you know, I call them white puffies uh, with a little bit of turbulence. Uh, and as I entered into the weather and tried to head over, you know, the top of them and the little narrow canyon, maybe a quarter mile across that they're in, maybe a half mile. Uh, the jet in the inside the cockpit turns dark and uh, the, I hear deafeningly loud hail, which is just amazing to me. You've got earplugs and ear pucks and a helmet and a bulletproof canopy uh, and the, the hail begins to, to beat on the jet. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm getting thrown up and down a little bit with the turbulence and I'm doing my best to fly as low as I can to be able to pick out something on the ground that I can, you know, reference and roll in and do my best to get down in there and help them. And my, my hope is to get down in there and pick out where the good guys are and where the bad guys are, and, you know, employ the 30 millimeter, the, the Gatling gun or some weapons and, and uh, you know, do my best to impact the battle for our fellas. Uh, and as I'm uh, flying into the storm and the jet's pitching up and down, uh, I tend to keep pulling the jet higher and higher into the weather and pulling above a minimum safe altitude. And I have left uh, the hot mic on, meaning I'm not broadcasting it, but the uh, intercom is recording what I'm saying. And uh, there's a little bit of language of me correcting myself back down, making it more likely for me to see uh, the ground and uh, that tape came back to haunt me at a roll call later as my pilot friends uh, made fun of me in the language I was using. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you were being very, very positive with yourself. Very, <laughs> yeah. very kind and gentle. Yes, kind, gentle. You know, my inner child would have felt a warm hug. You know, it, it's not something that I would want my mom or the church I attend to hear. And hopefully under the circumstances, they can all extend me a bit of grace. <laughs> uh, finally, I'm able to see a, a thin ribbon of agriculture. 
Uh, and uh, as I roll the jet up on its back, I take another hailstorm right in the, the bulletproof front section of the canopy. And the, the front canopy exterior level, there's several layers of that for the bulletproofing has, has shattered. And uh, as I rip the jet kind of over on its back and then uh, peel down uh, out of the altitude I was at and come around the canyon, um, you know, I'm doing my best to sort out where the good guys at, where the bad guys at. And at this point, it's obvious the only thing I'm really going to be able to do is a, a show of force. Um, and what that is, is that we want to reassure the good guys that, hey, we're here, we're here for you. There's firepower that you can rely on. Uh, and we want to buy time. Right? I want to get some separation or some distance from the enemy. I want them to know that I'm there. So I'm doing the best I can to be loud and scary and close. And we're dispensing flares. And hopefully the sound is bouncing off of the canyons there. Uh, and a show of force is a disappointment. It's not a Hollywood script for a fighter pilot, but that's what the scenario you know, is calling for. It's my job to keep the good guys safe, first of all, and then to attack the enemy, secondly. And so I would far prefer to shoot the enemy than scare them. Uh, but that's not the scenario we're in. And uh, as I go flying past, I get kind of down toward the end of the box canyon there and, and set the tail, set the jet on its tail and try to fly up out of there. And again, I'm taking hail as I re-enter the weather. And you're doing a little bit of the mental math as your airspeed bleeds off and you're climbing out to see, am I going to you know, clear these mountain peaks? And I don't know why it's just human instinct. You, you duck down in the canopy and in the jet like it's going to help somehow. Right. Uh, you know, and we squeak out over the top and uh, come out uh, the other side. And uh, the guys on the radio are profusely thankful. They're intercepts on the radio now are that, uh, you know, it's had some effect. It's been observed. Uh, the enemy would call the A-10 the monster or the dragon or things like that. And so they're, they're hearing comments about that, that they know that they've seen us. And uh, as I break out into the clear weather, now you, you look out and you see what has happened to the airplane. And, uh, you know, I come back and uh, there's an emergency. I've declared an emergency. This jet's not going to fly for a while. And uh, as I'm looking at the damage, you know, I just want to vomit in my mask a little bit. I'm not sure that I've done the right thing. Certainly it didn't have a glorious Hollywood ending like I would have preferred or they would have. Um, right. Was it worth it? Did it make a, a difference? And as I taxi back and, and park, you know, there's a huge crowd of our maintainers that are stunned at uh, what, what the jet looks like and the hail damage. It's all up and down the weaning, uh, leading edges of the wingtips and the engine nacelles and the, the canopy had taken two more hailstones, which was deafeningly loud. It, it felt like getting hit by a shot put at 400 knots. I was just stunned at how hard that felt. Um, but it held, you know, the exterior pain shattered, but the interior pains uh, held in place. And uh, the commander at the time, the group commander, not my squadron, but the next level up group commander was waiting there for me. And he had quite a reputation for grounding people. And as I come down the ladder, you know, I'm a little bit nervous, of course, and uh, criticizing myself and not sure. And uh, This is probably hard to imagine. When I get nervous, I talk a little bit too much. <laughs> and as I come down, my, my squadron commander and this guy that's known for grounding people are standing there and you know, I made the joke. I said, hey, it'll be fine. You know, I've got full comprehensive coverage through Geico. <laughs> and I laughed. My commander laughed. The boss didn't laugh. And, you know, maybe it was poor comedic timing. I don't know. But uh, that, that lesson that we kind of took away from there is that, you know, are we faithful to do the right thing, even though it might not look like success? Um, and so those were kind of hard lessons to learn, uh, really. But uh success doesn't always look scripted. It doesn't look like we hoped, but was I faithful to do the right thing? And you kind of leave the results uh, to somebody else. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's one of the things that you talk about in that chapter. And I think is a really poignant lesson. Uh, you also go into some detail after like post mission, the stress of, okay, I made this decision and now there's a bunch of people who are going to judge me for that decision. Sure. And, you know, coming from the military, it's a lot of bureaucracy, right? So you yeah. got to talk to this board and this board and this board and this colonel and this person. And, um, well, you're a colonel, so you're maybe not as intimidated <laughs> by colonels as I was yeah. as a, you know, young first lieutenant in Iraq, but, sure. um, you know, you, you have to go through that. And how do you, so I think from a mental resiliency side, that's the harder part. Right. Like the decision in the moment of there's good guys who need my help and I can give that help is sure. an easier like mental process than now dealing with the aftermath. 
Sure. So like, how do you say mentally tough in those moments where you're like, now everyone is questioning your decisions, which then is causing you to second guess your decisions. Sure. Well, and and as you pointed out at the time, you know, I I gave no thought to what was going to happen when I came back or who was going to watch my tape or the safety board, Um, you know, and that's the right way to do it. You know, I'm I'm doing the best I can with the instincts I have, the training I have. And, uh, you know, that's the point, right? Am I willing to put myself in harm's way for the benefit of another? Uh, And even your, your business owners, you know, the thought is, am I willing to do the right thing, you know, on the benefit of my employee or my customer or my athlete? Um, even though it, it might not uh, give the immediate results or financial feedback that, that we think it would. So, you know, these were all questions that come, you know, at the calm of hindsight. And I was a little bit younger, right? If had I been a little bit more old and grizzled, I wouldn't have thought so much. But I, I think um, as I began to kind of watch my tape and take notes and my senior leaders, my, my fighter pilot squadron commanders came in, you know, very quickly, I was reassured that, you know, we have to look at everything, but let's, let's watch it together. And their culture of, Hey, we support this type of risk. This is why we are here. Um, I think that bolstered my mental resilience. Um, I I don't know that I had enough on my own um, at the time to not feel like, you know, was was my whole career going to be colored by a bad decision here. Um, The maintainers were fantastic. You know, even though that jet was beat to a pulp, um, they would have had it running in two days had it not been impounded for longer. And so they were very proud of how that machine uh, flew. It didn't hiccup even once, you know, hailstones the size of racquetballs or tennis balls beating that thing up. And so when we talk about uh, mental resilience, you know, I'm pairing a little bit to social resilience and my Mm -hmm. tribe and how the tribe very much came around me. Um, it, It was an impressive just sense of, I belong. They're, they're here with me. They, they're protecting me. You know, I came out to see the jet a couple of, uh, you know, the next afternoon by myself and the maintainers wanted to come up and talk about it. And um, so I, there's more illustrations in the book that, uh, that go into that a little bit, but my mental resilience, the emotional resilience piece was very much tied to the social support network I was a part of. Have you taken as you've, so you said you were young in your career, have you taken those lessons you learned going through that experience and applied them when you became a squadron commander and you had those those young uh, sure. pilots, guys and yeah. gals, making hard decisions? I have hope. You, have you carried that forward? Yeah, I hope. You know, and I, I'm thinking of a couple specific instances, you know, that I won't share the details of. But, you know, people make mistakes, um, you know. And there's a difference between mistakes and crimes and what's the intent and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the way I would introduce those kinds of talks and we had occasions when we would need one of our one of our flyers to get up and say, hey, man, this is what happened. This is what I did. It was wrong. Here's the mistake I made. Here's how to learn from it. As I would introduce that, you know, in my mind, the phrase is there, but by the grace of God, go I. So I had hoped, you know, that the experience I had had given me a sense of empathy or sensitivity, you know, to say, I, I understand it. Um, you know, you're going to be a better pilot because of this down the road. Let's do our best to gain every valuable lesson we can from the pain of this and share it with our friends. Uh, but that's a very different approach than uh, one in which it's a hostile response. Uh, someone might be ridiculed. Uh, if we want a safety culture, if we want a culture that you know, is built on trust where we are learning and making each other better. You, you can't be hostile to that. So I, I hope that that shaped me. Good. Yeah, it's awesome. And you mentioned the, like the, uh, the hostile response. And I think some people might interpret some of the, the military responses as hostile because it's, uh, uh a lot of ribbing, like you oh, mentioned, sure. everyone mm-hmm. pulling up that, that audio and like <laughs> yeah. it kind of following you through your career. Like I can just yeah. imagine you getting up to do a presentation and you go to hit play and there's the audio again. And oh, you're like, sure oh, guys, right? Like those are the kind of pranks that get played oh, yeah. on people after they make mistakes. But I, I think it's that the military finds the balance of, you know, when people are just giving you a hard time cause they love you and you goofed up and we're like going to laugh about it forever. And then yeah. the, the, like those people who are belittling you and yes. tearing you down. Yeah. Absolutely. And they, they find a great way to hold that. You know, I had, um, I heard about hailstorms. I, I still hear about it. And, and I had to divert twice for tornadoes that had hit the airfield when I was, you know, airborne both occasions. And just the irony that the hailstorm guy, 
you know, is still the same one that's running into storms with tornadoes. You know, now I'm becoming causal. Uh, so uh, very much, you know, and I would get teased about that. But almost, you know, like you're teasing a younger brother or a family member. Right. Um, you know, I, I didn't sense anything that was alienating or belittling at all. And uh, I, I appreciate it. So as, as we were talking about the decision-making process, I have like a couple questions. The first one is really easy. Everyone always talks about OODA loop mm-hmm. in the, and it, how it came from the fighter pilots. Is that something yeah. still taught to fighter pilots today? Uh, it is. You know, the observe, orient, decide, and act. And that was, you know, designed by uh, Colonel John Richard Boyd. Great book, Boyd, if you've read that. Uh, and it's fascinating to me that he almost had a bigger cult following out of the Marine Corps uh, mm-hmm. for his design on, you know, quick attacks and nodal attacks versus uh, forming a beachhead. But uh, he was he was brilliant uh, and, and socially awkward and all of these strange things on the spectrum of sorts. But uh, the OODA loop is still taught within Air Force ranks. And there are, are um, portions of that that we teach even for very quick uh, dogfighting skills, and we don't call it an OODA loop, but it's the same principle, right? I'm I'm maneuvering in relation to the bandit. What's he do, and then what I do, and how do I now begin to to force uh, his aircraft to make uh, different movements, and then who's who's making the decisions faster to pressure the other one? So, whether it's on a large organizational scale, uh, on an individual career scale, or even in the very brief moments in which you might have an opportunity to to dogfight for training. Um, the OODA loop principles are, are, are still, I think, um, timeless. That's interesting. I actually have only heard them presented more on a micro scale of, mm-hmm. you know, um, close quarters combat style thing, dog fighting, sure. gun fighting, you know, you've, you've got that. And I actually thought that's what it was pulled from. So uh, it sounds like I have not read the book. Now I have to, I don't know why I haven't <laughs> read the book. Um, it sounds like it was actually more on a higher level scale than just dogfighting when he kind of came up with the principle. You know, I can't recall. I, I think the the birth of it was, you know, he was a great fighter pilot. They called him 42nd Boyd. He was exceptional in the jet. Uh, and he would tweak up the academics of how to train other fighter pilots. And mm-hmm. I think that's where the OODA loop was, was birthed from. But then the applications organizationally, you know, remained, remained right. true. And so we're doing that and how do we observe what rush is doing how do we orient our forces what are we going to decide to do and how do we act uh you know before they're able to adjust to make the next one and, you know the rapidity of that OODA loop then becomes kind of the the difference maker and the same thing would be true for your business owners what are we observing about our community how do we orient our our marketing our recruiting our performance to that what do we decide to do and how do we act on that more quickly perhaps than a competitive gym you know, 30 miles down the road. Yeah. And, and what, we so, see, what we see with a lot of people is they struggle to connect the decide and act portion. They can sure. observe, they can orient, but in the decision, they get that analysis paralysis and they fail to execute. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really the, that's the risky part, right? The decision sure. and then the action. Cause then yeah. it starts. There's over. a result. Yeah. There's a result. Well, and I think a great way to to formulate that, and I try to do this with some of the teams I live, is to prescribe ambiguity. You know, so as we're talking as a team, you know, we're observing this, we're orienting. Here's our decision and why. I think it's important people know why we're deciding it. Here's our action. And we call that version one. And what version one means is it implies we're going to continue to refine this. It gives ourselves permission to make changes. It's telling people to expect an update versus this is the plan forever and always, and it needs to be perfect. And, you know, right. people become beholden to the plan or offended if we need to make changes. But by simply calling something version one, I'm communicating to you that we're going to keep changing this thing and we're going to try and make it faster. I, I like that. And I instinctively know no, no operation order last per first contact. Once you sure. get in contact with the enemy, now you have everything is a fragmentary order after that because you've got to respond to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but applying that to a business mindset is really, really important uh, for all of our listeners. And I actually had the opportunity to teach. I don't know if the Air Force follows them exactly, but the eight troop leading procedures uh, from, a, from the Army side of developing, um, you know, disseminating information and, and leading troops. 
uh, to a bunch of gym owners. And it was really helpful for them to kind of see that, like that process. And I always emphasize, right. The last step is supervise um, because that's the easiest one to, to forget as a business owner, right. Uh Mix up the, the idea of I've delegated versus I've abdicated. I've just given it away and said, Oh, take care of that thing. Or I'm delegating it, meaning I'm engaged, I'm supervising, but you're managing. Right. right? Um, And to give people latitude to do it. Right. I I find it important to say that, you know, I have a desired outcome and my, my brief is we're going to go from here and here's my target, but how we get in there, maybe I give them one or two milestones, but how they get there, I want to leave up to them. And then as the leader, I need to be able to say, well, is it within, you know, plus or minus 10 degrees of what I would want? Then I need to be able to say, good, that's good. We'll take that. Versus it has to be the way I had envisioned it. Um, because then you're really not delegating right now. We're micromanaging. You're not yes. empowering. You simply need a worker bee because you don't have enough hands. Um, so it, it's a, it's an interesting model and it's tough, particularly for maybe business owners, self-employed owners where everything they do has a bottom line. You know, every day they take off, they know how much money they're losing. Uh, they started by putting the first tiles down for this gym floor. And so are they able, as they get more senior, to be able to say that's close enough because what are the things that only I can do as the owner? You know, sure, you can do all of the things because you know it better than anything else. But what the company needs from you are what are the things that only you can do? Uh, and can you discipline your time to do only the things that you can do? And that's tough. It's tough to let go of that stuff, I think. It is tough. And I think it does have a particular um, relevance to or correlation to military, especially being on the officer side. Uh, because as a, as a military officer, you're lucky. I don't know how on earth. Apparently, the Air Force allows colonels to do cool stuff. In the <laughs> Army, once you're like a major you're going to be at a desk. Like that's just facts. Uh, You're lucky as a captain to be a company commander um, Mm. and still be working with troops. Once you start to get to those higher levels, you're, you're desk duty primarily. Mm. So, but that doesn't mean you're not, not a critical component without leadership. There can be no, none of the other uh, stuff that has to happen. So I, I think it's an interesting correlation that you were talking about where owners like, yeah, you can do all those things like as a, as an infantry Lieutenant. Yeah. I, I can kick a door in, right. but that's not my job. Mm-hmm. That's not where my troops need me. My troops need me managing, coordinating on the radio, calling for support, those kind of things. Um, how, how do you balance that as, especially being mm-hmm. a, a fighter pilot, right? right. I imagine you progressed when you, as a squadron commander, do you still hop in the cockpit and fly the plane regularly? Uh, as a squadron commander, yes, uh, okay. within the Air Force. And, and you know, within our community and probably within most, even for, for business owners, right, you need to be able to have what I call tactical relevance and tactical credibility. Uh, at that level, you know, you should be able to lead mission one out the door day one um, for the war. Uh, so you you have to have tactical relevance, tactical credibility. You got to be current, uh, and you got to be good. And whether or not I was the best as a squadron commander, because I am juggling things other people aren't. You know, I'm I am probably not going to rank myself in the top you know number of pilots because I got younger guys that that is truly all that they do. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm flying half a dozen times a month, and maybe they're flying eighteen times a month. Well, I would expect them to be a little bit better. Now I'm hoping like a, a savvy ball player that's a little older, you, you know, you're hoping that your experience can make up that gap. But the, the bottom line is you, you got to be good at what you're doing. As you age out of that or as you move up into the higher levels, uh, you still want to have some connection, right? As a lieutenant, I want to know that you know how to kick in a door. You have yep. experience doing it. You know what the details and requirements are. Um, but if you are doing that, we've got misplaced priorities. We have things we need you to do on the other side. And that's tough, particularly as we age as pilots, right? We've had uh, a number of guys who, you know, said, you know what, I I don't care to go do the next thing. I just want to stay and maintain this uh, tactical piece of my life forever. And nothing wrong with that. We we need guys that can just kick doors in, you know, their whole career. That's good. Yeah. Um, So I have to ask, you had the foreword of your book written by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. 
Yes, an army hua. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, how did you make that connection uh, with one of probably the most, up until recently at least, one of the most famous military writers, widely distributed uh, military writers? Right. Oh, great question. And, and uh, I was very fortunate and uh, I'm excited uh, that he was willing to write that. So uh, as I was going through an edit, I had a, a great editor. Uh, I would call it a substantive edit, you know, that uh, he was a, a good academic challenging the things that I was bringing forward. He kept pushing me for the research I was presenting uh, and he was connected to the literary community. And um, I hadn't had a forward written as yet. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm a no one. I, I, I still am, you know, I'm not, I'm not a author. Uh, I don't know anybody to write this. And he had a connection to, to Dave uh, Grossman and uh, he introduced us via email. Then we had a quick uh, phone conversation and uh, we were fortunate that uh, he's from Western Nebraska, a town about 30 miles from where my dad grew up in Bridgeport. He grew up in Baird. Uh, and so there was a number of uh, kind of immediate connection points. Our conversation picked up some energy with commonalities. Um, we're both Christians. Our faith is foremost uh, in our work, in our lives, kind of in our purpose. You know, the, the reason I've written this book on spiritual resilience is to try to encourage people in their walk and their journey of faith and finding a sense of meaning and purpose. Well, all of those things kind of connected well for us. And uh, I said, would you, you know, would you be willing to, to write that? I'll send you the, the book. And he said, you know, I, he was so gracious. He says, I, I usually make a very critical read and then decide, but I, I can tell this will work for us. He goes, I'll write it. And so I sent him the book, of course, and he, he read through that and then wrote us a, a great forward. And uh, I'm very grateful. Yeah, that was, I was reading through it and I, I didn't really get his voice from it, but um, at, towards the end I started to. And then when I saw his, you know, his signature line, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there were a couple things he talked about. Uh, some of your, some of his comments about terrorists and and that mm -hmm. stuff like fit with him. He actually uh, he came and spoke to uh, our battalion before we deployed uh, in two thousand nine, and sure. was talking about how you know people may tell you your mission's not important anymore, but it really really is. And, right. uh, it was a it was a motivating conversation to mm -hmm. to listen to, and then I've had the opportunity to hear him speak a couple other times. Because uh, I work in law enforcement, and he's presented at um, yes. some of our uh, law enforcement conferences and things, uh, talking through similar stuff, right. mindset, etc. Well, and the same thing, you know, just a, a very high level of commitment to excellence. And for for your listeners, uh, you know, Dave Grossman is an Army Ranger, and uh, he's, he's in the Martial Arts Hall of Fame, and he was a psychological, um, a psych professor at West Point. He wrote the book on combat. He wrote the book on killing. He talked on, on spiritual warfare and uh, it speaks internationally uh, for, you know, military and police forces, uh, provides training and insights kind of to the, uh, how is it we train to do this? What kinds of things should we consider? How do we become better at it? How do we lead an organization of these kinds of people? And, uh, he's phenomenal. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Very phenomenal. Um, so you mentioned in the, at the end of the chapter I read and, uh, it may, I don't know if it was at the end of the chapter meant to be at the end of the chapter. It was all, all around about the book, but one of the, the key takeaways being that success can be elusive, fickle, and subjective. Yeah. Help me break that down and and it's so true, but help me break that down. And how do we, how do we manage that? You know, yeah. especially in an era where we hop on Instagram and everyone looks successful and, mm -hmm. and every business owner down the street looks like they're doing it better than we are. Yeah. You know, how, how do we manage that elusiveness and that fickleness and the fact that it's really hard to define what success even looks like? Right. Right. And who's defining it? You know, I, I think that's one of the challenges mm -hmm. as you reference social media and Instagram. And do I have a sense uh, of what success is uh, or am I allowing someone else's post to dis define what success means for me? Uh, and this isn't to, to present this section of our conversation to say that success or results don't matter. Uh, you walk into any fighter pilot community, your results matter more than nearly anything. 
uh, and there is a commitment to excellence there. Uh, but, you know, we live in a world that I would say, and you'll see it in the book where I talk about things being both broken and beautiful. Uh, and how do we manage the tension of that? And when we talk about success on the opposite side of that is failure. Uh, and I would say that there are some things that we are called to be faithful in, in our workplace and how we interact with others and the decisions we make, uh, whether or not we uh, lay down uh, our own pride, our own self-interest to, to make others around us better. Are we willing to do that? And that might not show on the balance sheet. You know, a little example that I give of that, we talk about William Wilberforce, who helped abolish slavery in, in England, an incredible story where he had uh, wealth and political status and education and was a brilliant individual and, and committed his life to abolishing, you know, the, the treacheries of slavery. And uh, he was mocked and ridiculed. And over the course of those 30 years, he had countless political failures uh, to get that passed. And it cost him his health. It cost him his treasure, but he knew it was the right thing. And so he was faithful uh, to doing the right things. And eventually that translated into success. And part of the message I gave for that is I don't feel like I or my, my fellow Americans, you know, I don't have a great concept of what suffering is. Uh, I don't have a great concept of what a long-term faithful commitment is to hope that after 30 years of self-sacrifice, that at that point, that faithfulness breeds success. And what does that success look like? And are we willing to kind of be painted as unsuccessful until that comes about? And, you know, one of the things I think your owners will, will begin to understand and capture is the most successful gems in my mind are the ones that are able to, to tie together several parts of our lives, social, mental, and emotional, physical resilience. They have a place where they belong. They show up on a journey to get better. We have a, a common sense of community of where we want to get to. Um, are we willing to go through the process of that and be faithful to that, even though it might not comparatively look like success to somebody else's picture? That's, uh, if you're listening, timestamp that right now. That <laughs> right there was just gold, and absolutely what people need to be doing and fulfilling. Right, that's the that's what you fulfill for your clients. I think one of the challenges we have, and and you may not know this about cheer gyms because you're friends with Danielle and Justin, who yeah, are absolutely. incredibly successful as business owners. They are actually very very smart business owners, um, hence why I'm partnered with them. Um, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of gyms actually struggle with, they don't think about the bottom line. They're not worrying about the balance sheet. They're worrying about mm -hmm. the trophy. They're worrying mm -hmm. about, oh, well, that kid can't, can't afford to pay, so I don't, I don't charge them. And they mm -hmm. quickly get themselves into a situation where they're making decisions that might be good for the person because they're mm -hmm. good giving people, but they're not good for the longevity of the business. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a decision-making process mm -hmm. that military leaders have to do oftentimes as well, where right. sometimes, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, without making it like super dark and, and depressing, uh, there would be missions we would go on when we would need close air support, but we would be at red air, mm -hmm. which meant, for those listening meant we couldn't get any planes, couldn't take off. They couldn't, fly because we're in Iraq and there were sandstorms or whatever. Yeah. And we were operating in a more dangerous um, footprint now because we didn't have our close air support. We were now on mission without the ability to bring those assets to bear because of the red air. That's a decision that gets made, even though it's not necessarily the best for the, the troops on the ground, it's the best decision for the military as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, as a higher level military leader, can you talk me through how you make those decisions, how you weigh the balance of, of human life and then right. accomplishing the mission? Yeah. Well, and that's such a difficult question, right? And that's where, that's where the wisdom and discernment and experience all comes together, where you're beginning to make value-based decisions. And uh, this will sound funny, but if, if you'll allow the paradox and you use the word balance, right? When I talk about doing the right thing uh, and being faithful to that and faithful to a process, 
uh, versus allowing someone else to define success, that's in no way an excuse for results, right? For your young business owners, the way your company talks to you is through your numbers. Your spreadsheet is how your company communicates to you. And so when we go in and you're looking for success and what kind of decisions we need to make, it doesn't matter, you know, I'm only able to be so generous and touch so many lives if I'm viable. And if I'm viable, that extension of generosity or character or community is quickly going to come to an end, you know, so there might be occasions when that becomes uh, subservient, uh, but we have to set a model for success and you have to ask the kind of questions. Is this sustainable? Is this profitable? Are we going to make good decisions going forward? And uh, so the wisdom and discernment that you, you hope to have, you, you get on your knees at, at night before the next day's combat flying or decisions and, and ask for wisdom as it comes to that. But those are ongoing questions. So things that we do extend, all right, hey, th- this might hurt us a little bit, but it's for the benefit of the member. You know, uh, or is the decision that we're making reflecting the values, us, you know, taking care of them, taking care of their family, um, covering their back, taking care of their health, uh, extending ourselves um, because we understand uh, this is a unique scenario versus uh, this is uncomfortable. So we're going to cover it up or not talk about it. Uh, you know, the, the saying is that you deserve what you tolerate. And so people that are defiant or toxic or, you know, just perpetually mediocre, well, that's not an instance in which you need to extend grace. That's when you need to hold the standard. Uh, and so you need to be now understand all right, where, where in this big gray world is that balance tipping towards? Yeah. Yeah. Very valuable information there. And it's such a challenge. It's always hard to get to that point where you can discern. And it's really hard. A lot of our gym owners come in and they're, they're 24, they're 25, mm-hmm. oftentimes similar to a young army lieutenant or a young, uh, I don't know what your starting officer rank is. Is it lieutenant? Yeah. Yep. Second, second lieutenant. lieutenant. So a young second lieutenant coming into the air force, they don't know nothing about nothing. Uh, yeah. and I think as a business owner, finding people who can guide and mentor you similar to how you would in the military, you know, I come in, I'm given a platoon and it's those grizzled 18 year staff sergeants that are shaping me and, Mm -hmm. and saying, no, sir, this is where you need to be focused. No, sir. This is how we need to do things Mm -hmm. here. And that, yes, I'm making the ultimate decision, but they're guiding me and they're giving me that knowledge that I don't have yet. Right. And I think it's important that you're intentional about that. So to your 24-year-old gym owner, um, you have to go on offense as the gym owner and find your Yoda, right? Who is going to teach me? And you have to empower that person and and then ask them. I think most people when asked, um, you know, hey, can you help me with this or can you teach me that are, are almost flattered and ready to instruct. I find it very disarming. When I tell someone, hey, man, I've, I've, I think I've got a blind spot here. Can you help me see what I'm not seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of a sudden, anything that might be annoyed or tension filled, uh, I'm demonstrating a receptivity to instruction. Uh, and I, I was so fortunate to be part of a fighter pilot community, very um, gifted people that they're the gifted ones that I get to watch and, and be around very smart people that there's going to be an expert in there on home mortgages, what car to buy, how to you know fix your house, if you should buy an airplane, where to invest. Uh, I think the same thing goes for the business owners. Somebody has done this before and we need to spend the time to, to be taught. But I think, again, the key piece is, you know, do I have a, a spirit that's receptive to instruction yes. and am I empowering them to speak truth to my life? You know, I know that it, like, it's like the, the funny mirror, right? If I'm too close to the mirror, my, my reflection is bur- blurred and I need a little perspective to step away from that. And I'm asking people to help me do that. And there's an occasion in the book, I tell a story about that, where I was a little mad on our last combat deployment and frustrated and uh, my director of operations is a really good friend, wise, um, and he wouldn't cower from a conversation. You know, we, we were able to disagree uh, with energy and, and then go eat together. And uh, I said, look, I should not be this mad. Uh, there, there, I've got a blind spot here somewhere. And I'm just prescribing right away. I, I need you to help me figure this out. 
you know, and he did very quickly and in very few words, you know, and I kind of had to pack my hurt feelings into the drawer for a little bit and, and resist the urge to defend myself. Uh, and very quickly, I, I could see his wisdom. Um, but it's not like people go walking around saying, you know, I think I've got some insight for you. Let me give you some right. wisdom. Uh, you're the one that has to empower the right people to speak truth to your life. Yes, absolutely. And I know you, although we're not a, a spiritually focused group, I know you believe one of those sources should be a, a spirituality and a, and a faith and a communion with, uh, obviously as a Christian with God. Um, but, you know, that, that can be a very valuable piece for people uh, sure. to, to bring into their lives. Absolutely. Well, and whether you are a person of faith or not, I think what you'll discover, and Simon Sinek says this, you know, it starts with why. Why as a 24-year-old are you opening a gym? Well, if we keep going down the why trail, that comes to calling and purpose. And why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why did I not get the result I wanted? You know, and inherently those kinds of questions lead to resilience questions. And I think those are spiritual resilience questions regarding what do I do with brokenness? What do I need to do with forgiveness? What do I do with, man, I lost. Do I get up and fight again tomorrow or do we go a different way? And so, you know, I just invite your listeners to, to begin finding that sense of meaning and calling and, and purpose that can kind of be a more deeply rooted um, value more of a deeply rooted principle, more of a deeply rooted calling and meaning that helps you get through those seasons. Um, yeah. it, it, there's an importance to that. And it helps you stay consistent too. You're less likely to get tossed here and there by every change of news uh, if I'm connected to my sense of meaning and purpose. So you, you also mentioned in the book that criticism and scrutiny will always travel with change makers. So how do you personally, how do you manage that? How do you deal with the criticism and the scrutiny yeah. following you around wherever you go? <laughs> good question. Well, um, I am not good at that. Uh, I'm, I'm a, the oldest son. I grew up a preacher's kid. I'm a bit of a social perfectionist. I want people to like me. I like people to laugh. I want them to be happy. You know, so I, I don't want to disappoint people and their expectations uh, but I, I would call right back to the things that we we have discussed in the sense of uh, when I am determined to know that we are making the right decision for the right reasons, uh, then kind of the, the criticism um, carries less weight. My own resilience is, is prepared for it in some ways. And uh, I don't know that I'm a great change maker. Uh, there's occasions when, uh, you know, I've tried to implement that in a number of ways and I, I find... Um, always being transparent in my decision-making. If I'm transparent in my decision-making, here's what we're going to do and here's why, uh, and you don't have to agree with it, but it's a defensible rationale, right? Now I feel like now I'm good to go, right? And if there's good things that we need to update or change, fine. But if it's a defensible rationale and I'm transparent about why we're doing this, now the criticism carries less weight to me. I think criticism begins to gain momentum and credibility of sorts when people don't quite understand why or you've made decisions that are violating the values of the company, right? If, if one of your gym owners expects, you know, extremely prompt, you know, attendance and, and prompt uh, time card uh, and prompt start times for each class, but one instructor who happens to be an exceptional instructor is always late and slovenly what we're seeing is that we're not holding up our own values. Somebody's getting a free pass uh, and that criticism right. and frustration will build. Yeah, that's, and we see that a lot in various cheer gyms, that exact circumstance. Um, we also see, and I think what you, you touched on, I think is important for people to remember is giving the why doesn't take away your authority. Uh, it's, it's not, necessarily even uh, showing that you don't know what you're talking about or you're being pretty defensive. Uh, it is giving people the courtesy to explain why you're making the decision you make. And mm -hmm. we work in a really weird world where when people do competitive cheer, we treat our clients like our subordinates, even mm -hmm. though they're the ones paying us. And there can oftentimes be a defensive mechanism when you, you make a decision and people say, well, well, why? 
Well, if yeah. you haven't explained it, um, I mean, people have a right to ask why. And I've had owners talk to me as I bring up military experience and they're like, yeah, but they have to follow your orders. Okay. One, if you're the leader that says, do it because I ordered you to, you're mm-hmm. a bad leader. Right. And two, anyone who's ever worked with young enlisted soldiers knows that they can take your order and do it in a variety of ways and still follow your order, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to actually clean the latrine can mean a lot of things sure. <laughs> sure. to a, a young private. So they can just – that's not the, the get-out-of-jail-free card that people may think it is in the military of like, oh, well, you can give people an order and they have to follow it. Right. Well, I think of, you know one of the, the previous boss I had was exceptional at, at discussing this a little bit, and he said that the currency in which we work with our people is trust. And so those clients trust you to push them to be their best. Now, what they need to see demonstrated, you know, is an unyielding commitment to being the best. And so I, I think of John Cook and the University of Nebraska volleyball team. We're, we're Huskers. God help our football team. Uh, but we've got an exceptional volleyball team. And he is going to tweak with that starting lineup and make changes regardless of who's the fan favorite. You know, we had an All-American uh, named Lexi Sun who came back for a COVID fifth year, and she wasn't even a starter that last year. Uh, and the mm-hmm. fact is, everyone, you know, you might have an emotional reaction to that or, or little barbs that you would throw back, but there is no question that that guy is doing the best he can to win. And so right. what you want to develop then is, all right, these people have given me permission to kind of push, I'm a coach, my foot's in your back. I want our performance at the best. Well, you you can't be inconsistent with that. We can't let the prettiest kid be out front, even if they're not the best. They have to be the best. Um, and I'm going to maintain a consistent commitment to that. And the why might be a luxury to discuss sometimes. You know, there, there might be occasions when we don't have time to get into that. And I'm thinking of your military scenario now where I just need you to do it and I'll tell you why later. Um, but generally, uh, everyone should know that, well, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me, but decision after decision after decision, we know that Dan wants this team to win and he's making the best choices he can for us to win. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only time it really worked in garrison, it doesn't work in the military in a combat setting. Soldiers are going to do what you tell them to do, or airmen are going to do what you tell them to do because they know you want to win. They know you're yeah. going to make the decision to win that fight. Um, but that's that's a little different than yeah. what we encounter in the business world. Sure. So I have two. We've been on for a little bit. I don't want to take up too much of your Friday. I have two Absolutely. more questions for you, and neither sure. one of them really relate to business that that's much. Fine. Number one, you deployed a lot of different places between working in Afghanistan and working in Iraq. Which one did you prefer? Uh, oh, <laughs> that's a, that is a tough question. I've never had that one. I was, I was going to say, uh, I thought you were going to ask you where I've preferred to be. And, uh, I've got to dogfight Finland F-18s out of Estonia and, and fly in the UK, uh, you know, for different exercises, but, uh, Iraq versus Afghanistan, uh, I would say, um, you know, topography, geography, Afghanistan is just one of the most amazing countries you've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, it's, tragic that we can't get stability and self-governance in there because they have, they would have the best skiing and whitewater rafting you could ever have. Uh, but, um, I would think that Iraq, there was an advantage, even though there was tribal challenges there is that there was a government infrastructure and people understood that they were Iraqis. Uh, Afghanistan is, is, less infrastructure, uh, less commitment to a, a, a positive degree of nationalism and more tribal uh, and, and difficult right. in that sense to make progress as we define progress, I think. Yeah, and this isn't even a question, but you'd mentioned it before of Americans haven't ever really, most of us haven't really experienced true suffering for an extended period of time. And I think that that's a unique perspective that anyone serving in the military in the last 20 years who's been to Iraq or Afghanistan, we, we appreciate our country just a little bit differently because we've seen what it really could be. Sure. We've seen, sure. you know, 
I don't know how much time on the ground you ever spent in Iraq, but there was a town close to Al-Assad Air Base that we would have to drive through on our way to Baghdad mm-hmm. called Hit, was what yeah. it was called. And uh, they had open sewage through the streets. And you could always tell when you were about two miles out from Hit because you could smell it. Mm-hmm. And that's where people live their lives. So, yeah. like, this is – it made you more appreciative to live where we live. Right. Um, the other question I had reading was – and it wasn't fully in the book because I didn't get all the chapters. I just read the first one, and apparently it's chapter 20, and it's titled My Daddy Kills Bad Guys <laughs> from yeah. uh, a report your son wrote. Uh, uh, some artwork, Did, yeah. yeah. Artwork. Okay, did you get a call from the school? <laughs> I did not get a call from the school. And, and, yeah, we had gone to visit my little grade school son, and uh, they had their artwork out on the hallways, you know, with too much glue dripping off of everything. And uh, they had to write a little report and uh, just a one sheet and draw a picture that went with it. And um, who was your hero? And I, I was very blessed that my son wrote about me. And then he drew a picture of a bubble wing day 10, like a kid would draw rolling in uh, to strafe. And uh, on the top of it, he wrote, my daddy kills bad guys, which I actually wanted to be the title of the book. That was my draft title of the book was my daddy kills bad guys. But the, the publisher thought uh, I don't have the credibility or, or, or the following to have a provocative title. Um, and I did not get a call. Uh, I laughed and was proud of him because that is a phrase we've used in our home. Uh, not flippant about the mission, but, but he had an understanding of the, the purpose and the meaning. And uh, yeah, it was it was a fun memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it made me think back to when my kids were young and using similar, similar language. Um, it was more often daddy's going to go catch bad guys. There we go. Well, you did better than I did then. I was, I was a little too direct. Well, <coughs> I mean, the police mission is different, right? Yeah. Army mission. My, my son, my first son was born when I was in Iraq. So I never had oh. to have that discussion uh, gotcha. going to, to going to a combat zone. Uh, but for going to work every night, you know, it's, yeah, daddy's got to go, pe- go catch bad guys. Uh, so it just, it made me reminiscent of the, <laughs> the, yeah. the phrasing that we use um, to yeah. explain very complex things to young kids. Absolutely. Um, well, and I think for listeners, it might be harder for the, you know, the thought was who was walking by and saw that and saw the, the beautiful word daddy and kill right next to each other. How could those two things possibly coexist? Uh, and so that's kind of what I talk about in that chapter a little bit is an integrated life of faith and meaning and purpose and calling where, again, the world is both broken and beautiful, can see those two things come together where a son might feel loved and protected and secure. But as Grossman so eloquently says, uh, but we're also a sheep wolf. And when the evil's at the door, I'm the one I am designed to stand in the way of that yep. uh, and and willing to go in harm's way on their behalf. And, and I'm sure there's no listener that wouldn't be willing to do that on behalf of their loved ones. Absolutely. Well, Colonel, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have loved it. Uh, can't appreciate it more for anyone who is looking to buy your book. Uh, where can they go to do that? And where can they go to get more information about what it is you do? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dan. So I have a website, uh, thunderboltleadership.com. So www.thunderboltleadership, one word.com. So the A10 is known as the Thunderbolt 2. So you'll see my little logo on there. And you can order the book from any of your preferred uh, providers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, that's on there. Uh, there's also a little button right there that says, hey, I, do you want a free test flight? And you can go on that website and get a free download of chapter one that Dan has talked about a couple of times. I'd I'd love to have you there. And there's also a contact form in there. Uh, And I've got uh, 15 e-reader download copies. So if you want a free download of the book, uh, I've set 15 of those aside for Dan and his audience here for you next gen, Jen Omers. And if you go through the contact piece and just say, hey, listen to you, looking for an e-copy, I can reply and send you the code for that. And uh, would love to have it. The book drops on the 8th of November. So your digital people will get a free early look. Uh, and reviews are critical to that. So thunderboltleadership.com. Thank you, Dan. Well, that is an amazing offer. Thank you for, for doing that. Make sure you take advantage of it. Those 15 people who get the free download. 
Uh, if he sends me an email in a week after this releases and says, hey, no one's downloaded it, um, I'm going to go get one. So <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, That's fair. No, I'm going to buy it. I want, I want a hard copy. It needs to go on the bookshelf. Um, Sounds good. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Next Generation Gym Owners People and Profits Podcast. If you would like to be featured on our podcast, click the link in our description to apply. If you're interested in joining NextGen, visit our website at www.nextgenowners.com. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening.